I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world of ours. And uh, I'm looking outside of my window now, and it's a snowy world. Um, I'm wishing everyone a uh, happy and healthy new year. Um, I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a series of conversations on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Uh, today, we're going to unpack and explore Russia's war against Ukraine um, and what may constitute the best approach for the Biden administration in 2024 uh, and perhaps beyond. Uh, I can think of uh, no, two more distinguished and extraordinary analysts and scholars on these matters to help guide us through this conversation. So let me introduce them there. Carnegie's own, uh, Eric Jaramella and Dara Masico. Um, Dara is a senior fellow in the Russia and Eurasia program at Carnegie. Her work focuses on defense and security issues in Russia and Eurasia. Prior to joining Carnegie, uh, Dara was a senior policy researcher at RAND, senior analyst for Russian military capabilities at the Department of Defense. She's published extensively on Russian military capabilities, modernization efforts, strategy and a, and a preeminent expert on the Russo-Ukrainian war. She holds a master's degree in national security and strategic studies from U.S. Naval War College and a B.A. in Russian language and literature in peace, war, and defense from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Eric Jaramilla is a senior fellow in the Russia and Eurasia program at Carnegie, where his work focuses on Ukraine and Russia. Prior to joining Carnegie, uh, Eric served for 12 years in the U.S. government as an intelligence analyst and policy official. He was a deputy national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia in the National Intelligence Council, where he helped lead the intelligence community's strategic analysis on the former Soviet Union. He also served on the NSC staff, first as director for Ukraine and then as acting senior director for Europe and Russia. He's also been a um, senior political analyst at CIA, where he specialized in Europe and the former Soviet Union. Let me just make a, an opening comment before we get to our two guests. You know, as we begin the third year of this war uh, soon, it seems clear that neither Russia nor Ukraine is in a position, at least now, to achieve all of its objectives, either on the battlefield or certainly through a negotiation. How we describe this conflict is important. I, I don't think it's a frozen conflict, but is it a stalemate uh, or a grinding war of attrition? One thing, it seems elementally clear. Um, since 1815, the average length of an interstate conflict is three months. According to the academic studies, when a conflict lasts longer than a year or two, it may stretch on to a decade. So what we're faced with under any conceivable circumstance is a relatively long war. And if, in fact, that is the case, how we approach this, how we analyze this war um, is critically important. Uh, as Darren and Eric know, uh, our inestimable colleagues, Andrew Weiss and Eugene Rumer, in what I think is a must-read article in the Wall Street Journal, argued that it's time to end what they call the magical thinking when it comes to a short war or a decisive one. The bottom line theirs is that Putin feels no pressure to end the war and a great many reasons to maintain it, perhaps indefinitely. 
We're going to talk about Russia and get Eric and Dara's um, analysis on what Putin is thinking. But first, I want to turn to the battlefield dynamic. Let me start with you, um, Dara. I was going to quote from a long and depressing piece that Thomas Gibbons Neff, former Marine in Afghanistan, now working for the New York Times, who's in, uh, in uh, eastern Ukraine now, talks about Ukraine's perilous position on the battlefield. But Dara, provide some pers perspective, if you will, on first, how would you describe this conflict? And then uh, give us some perspective on the battlefield dynamic at the moment. Sure. So I I don't have a, a bumper sticker word yet for this, but I don't think stalemate's the right word. Stalemate would imply that neither side has a really good option moving forward. And, and that's not true either. This is still uh, very much hotly contested along most parts of the front. Uh, Russia has been on the initiative now since the late fall, since the Ukrainian counteroffensive culminated. Um, both sides are encountering the same type of problems when they try to move forward offensively. It's it's a environment of constant surveillance with drones, loitering munitions, and both sides are having problems massing the type of force necessary to, to move forward. Um, both sides are also operating pretty efficiently on the defense, too. So this is um, it, it's not a stalemate. Stalemate implies it's calcifying in place. It's, it's not quite there yet. Um, in terms of, you know, there are there are pieces that are pretty gloomy um, that are out there. I would say that things are not quite that bad, um, you know, but there are some decisions that need to be made pretty urgently in terms of continuing to support military assistance to Ukraine. And we, we can talk about that later. Clearly not a frozen conflict. And you don't, I mean, I appreciate you don't want to, to use the bumper sticker word. Um, it's not a, a stalemate. Um a grinding war of attrition? I only ask this question because attrition suggests that the larger power with the uh, sizable population, and Russia's is three times Ukraine's uh, greater industrial base, um, is has the advantage. Uh, can you describe this as a grinding war of attrition, or is is that simply too simple? Uh, you can. And, and you know, we should talk about what that looks like here, because we can't deny that Russia does have um, a growing advantage that it can bring and is bringing in terms of manpower and the rates of fire um, since they've been mobilized for the last 15 months. I mean, that's that's happening. The dynamic that we see right now is not a stable one. And over time, if we don't change this dynamic, it's going to get worse for Ukraine. Um, Russia you know, they, they are able to stabilize their front lines with manpower, but this isn't easy for them either. They're straining the volunteer system to its limits. They're facing labor shortages in, cre in critical industries across Russia that aren't directly affiliated with the defense industry and even a little bit there too. So it is attrition. Russia is willing to absorb a lot of casualties that frankly Ukraine cannot afford to. Um, but their power remains pretty disordered. If you look at all the advantages that they do have, um, whether it's artillery rate of fire, whether it's glide bombs, whether it's missile strikes on Ukraine, they're still not able to translate that into meaningful forward progress, which they would very much like to do. Right. I'm going to come back to this whole issue of the will to fight uh, as, opposed, uh, as opposed to the will to fund, which is, I think, extremely important. But Eric, over to you. Um, how do you see things? Uh, hi, Aaron. Um, I basically, you know, agree with with Dara's analysis here that you know stalemate is probably not the right word to use here because you know if we think of it in 
kind of traditional chess terms, it implies that there's no move that any side can make to, you know, change the picture on the board. And what's actually happening here is that you have um, a race to rearm, really. And that's what 2024 is about. Um, you know, if in chess, as you get to the end game, you could start throwing more queens onto the board, um, that obviously is not a stalemate. And eventually one side could throw more queens onto the board and overpower and capture the king. And so in this case, you know, what we're talking about here is a Russian military reconstitution that's underway. And uh, when you get to the the will to fund and this kind of um, war of attrition against a larger power, the question is, can Ukraine rely on the collective economic weight of its Western backers, which far um, dwarfs the economic potential of Russia? So that's where you get the kind of dynamic that, you know, this is this is static on the front lines right now, hotly contested, but mostly static. By the end of this year, things could be in a very different position based on the decisions that we and the Russians and the Ukrainian leadership make now. Almost two years into this war, have um, what have the Russians and Ukrainians learned in terms of their capacity to adjust and to make their military campaigns more effective? Dara, thoughts? Yeah, I, I would say just watching the two of these, um, it's been my impression that often the Ukrainians are the first ones to try something innovative and adaptive. And the Russians often look at that and think that's a really good idea. And then they're able to take it. And then they have the advantage of scaling it up at home and then putting it back into the battlefield. We're seeing that now with drones. We're seeing that now with loitering munitions. We're seeing it, uh, the same dynamic um, in terms of inserting infantry really quickly, um, using an armored vehicle and then pulling back because they can't actually bring large armor to the front. All of those things were done. Those were techniques that were first um, initiated by the Ukrainians in this war, and the Russians are able to, to do it. Um, they do have their own adaptations that they're doing. They've, they've been uh, um, you know, innovating and adapting. That process has really accelerated since they mobilized last September. It gave them the financial bandwidth and access to state resources to do this. And they've, they've been learning the whole time and scaling it up. Um, a lot of the innovations that I see right now are uh, with their head drones, how they're using them, how they fly. Um, they're trying to adapt their missile strikes to overwhelm Ukrainian air defenses and destroy them. Um, so that it opens the skies up. So, you know, the the Ukrainians and Russians, the cycle of learning adaptation is getting shorter and shorter and shorter all the time, which you would expect for this point in a protracted war um, against um, two militaries like this. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I think, unfortunately, the West has not fully activated a lot of its potential in technology and innovation and human capital because they haven't made the same type of mobilization choices or activated the same type of um, legislations that would really crank this into overdrive in the way that the Russians have. Eric, can you, I mean, I know you're interested in this piece of it, the will, the will to fund. Can you um, sort of walk us through, we'll save the U.S. Uh, um, for a, a few minutes from now. But on the European side, I know the Brits have just um, uh, secured a significant package, multi-year assistance, but what, what is driving the will to fund on the part of the Europeans? After all, one would think um, that, uh, particularly on uh, the view of some of the frontline states, that um, Russian military poses a much more urgent threat to them than it does to us. So what what's driving um, the European um, piece of this? 
Sure. So definitely on the European side, you know, there is a broad sense of urgency um, and, you know, the, the sense that Russia can't be allowed to prevail in Ukraine because it would have um, devastating effects on the whole European security order. Um, you know, again, even though Ukraine is not in NATO or the European Union now, uh, Ukraine's kind of future security and prosperity and independence European nations recognize um, is now closely intertwined with their fates as well. And so there is, you know, it's not necessarily an existential risk as it is for Ukraine, you know, the existence, very existence of its state, but it's pretty close to that. Uh, and so for the Europeans, you're, you're seeing, I think, a much more serious discussion about how to lock this policy in um, on a more predictable and sustainable footing. And there's been some challenges associated with getting a new funding package approved with Hungary's, um, you know, blockade and veto of the funding. But there's an effort to either work around the Hungarians or find some sort of compromise with them about, you know, regular reviews or whatnot. I saw um, just before we signed on here that Hungarian Prime Minister Orban had just met with his Slovak counterpart, Robert Fico, um, who's seen as the other kind of leading Ukraine skeptic, although Slovakia under Fico hasn't really been willing to play the hardball tactics that Hungary has. But actually, Orban's comments, I read them as a little bit of an olive branch of saying, you know, basically, we want to support Ukraine. We think it's in our interest. We just need to do this in a way that doesn't take away from, you know, the funding that's given to um, poor members of the EU. That was the deal when we kind of entered the EU that, um, you know, there would be this kind of redistribution of European wealth. And so the net beneficiaries of European kind of budgetary payments um, don't want to give up that advantage. Uh, and so I think there's a way forward on the European side, frankly. Um, it's really, and I know we're going to talk about the US later, it's, it's our Congress that I think is the trickier piece. Right. And uh, Ukraine, frankly, the, the most consequential piece of the Ukraine story may well be uh, not in European capitals or on the battlefield in the next six to eight months, perhaps in November as well, but in Washington, which is a perilous thought, frankly. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you um, if you would both comment on a, a criticism and a charge that we frequently hear. Um, Eric, you and I have talked about this before. The charges made that the U.S. was late in terms of the will to fund. Uh, charges made that the U.S. was late. It was risk averse. It didn't demonstrate the, <clears throat> excuse me, the kind of risk readiness that was critically important to provide Ukraine with the weapon systems in as timely a manner as was necessary. And this was part of the reason uh, that the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, did not succeed. It's counterfactual, right? I mean, it's hard to know uh, what would have been the case had had the Biden administration sensitive to the risk of of escalation, with it, which increasingly many people began not to take seriously uh, as the war dragged down. But I just wanted to get your sense from both of you, uh, Dara. First, um, is there any validity to this? I think we have to distinguish um, between what was a delay caused by risk aversion versus what was a delay caused by the simple, uh, or <laughs> the opposite, the complicated logistical nature of doing this. Um, I think that, um, you know, in, from my perspective, most of the delays 
have been logistical since maybe mid-22. Um, I think maybe in the beginning of the war, where no one really knew what was going to happen, um, no one had really observed reactions and patterns yet, maybe there was a bit of um, apprehension about surging certain classes of weapons into Ukraine, not knowing if Russia would escalate or not. That's a speculation on my part from, from the outside. I was having a baby at the time, so I wasn't really paying too close attention to that precise um, weeks um, in the run-up to the invasion. Um, but you know what I've seen now, um, it is real the, the logistical system that is built to get weapons proved and into Ukraine is very complicated. The Russians have not been able to disrupt it. It takes time from when things are approved until it's in the hands of a soldier or a pilot. Um, there's just a certain amount of lead time in there. And I think sometimes that lead time, things are actually happening in the background that we're not aware of, and they take time to get to the battlefield. Um, that being said, you know, if I was going to offer um, a mild critique, um, you know, it was apparent to, to, to many people that the Russians were digging in starting last fall. Um, there were all sorts of um, versions of why there were delays and explanations for why there were delays in the Ukrainian counteroffensive until June. Um, but the, the fact remains that by June 23, the Russians were dug in pretty well and had set up a pretty advanced network of defenses system. I mean, this was being tracked from space. This wasn't a surprise um, that it was happening. So I, I guess it's um, you know a, a question that I have is that if if Ukraine was being resourced for this offensive to the tune of multiple brigades and all of the artillery ammunition necessary to do it, um, why was it that certain capabilities like cluster munitions or attackums, which were important, um, were not provided until after that began? Um, that That's a, a, a question I have. Final point on it. Western equipment in the hands of Ukrainian operators and with Western support works very, very well. Um, that's not the issue. The issue is the numbers that are being given to them. They just need more. Right. The issue, the issue though, and you, you pose the question, do you have an answer to the question? Um, no, I mean, I, I think there were um, defense industrial question, defense industrial based issues that should have been resolved 18 months ago. Uh, we can't go back in time now um, and place orders in the past or initiate, you know, quantity improvements um, 18 months ago in the past. Eric, to you, same question. Sure. I mean, I I agree with Dara's kind of framing that there's um, it's there's a difference when you're talking about the early phases of the war and uh, sort of, you know, the fall of 22 onward. Um, I was still at, at CIA and the you know run up to the war and um, for the you know several months after it uh, began. And, you know, there were real concerns. Um, and questions about how far Putin was willing to go. And so, you know, from my standpoint, um, one can go back and and um, hindsight is always 2020. And you can say, well, the escalation potential was never really there. And Putin was bluffing the whole time. But no one really knew that. And, you know, wars are fought and decisions are made on these consequential national security questions with imperfect information. And at the time, no one knew how far the Russians were willing to go. And no one knew whether, you know, a, a Russian strike against NATO territory was completely off the table. And Putin did warn of, you know, anyone interfering, facing, you know, consequences, the likes of which they'd never seen before. And again, you can't just brush comments and rhetoric and posturing off. Um, it would be irresponsible to, um, you know, the American people to just cavalierly say, well, 
you know, we're going to do everything we can and completely ignore any risk of escalation. So I understand why there was some caution, um, you know, in the early days. I would say that once the war sort of took on its own logic and it became a bit clearer what, you know, Russian limitations were, both capabilities-wise and intent-wise, um, I do agree with Dara that decisions should have been made early on, um, particularly concerning our defense industrial base, not only here, but also in Europe. And actually, you know, the United States made some decisions to start ramping up production. Um, the Europeans lagged for a lot longer. Uh, and again, there was this magical thinking, getting back to Andrew and Eugene's piece about there being shortcuts to end the war oh, the Russian economy will collapse under sanctions or there will be a mutiny on, you know, on the Russian uh, side and the army will revolt and turn against Putin or whatever, whatever. And really, I think it became clear to a lot of people who are following this that the political issues between the two sides were so um, fundamentally kind of um, intractable and that this war... Again, it didn't just start in February 2022. It started in February 2014, and it was fundamentally over the sovereignty and independence of Ukraine. And there's no, there was no easy way to bridge these divides. Um, and so it was likely to settle into this kind of protracted conflict. And so, you know, again, the critique that I would offer similar to Darrow's is that um, decisions should have been made earlier on to scale up the defense industrial base um, and to put our you know, the funding mechanisms and the whole policy framework onto a much longer term footing. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. To you both, no single weapon system provided earlier would have fundamentally altered the trajectory of the battlefield. Is that a reasonable assessment? Or no no weapon system offered in unlimited, well, we didn't have unlimited quantities, but it, was there a key that might have? Uh, no, so I, there's there's not there's not a magic bullet, um, you know, answer here, um, you know, and so I don't I don't want to engage too much in, in hypotheticals on that point. But I just go back to, you know, we gave Ukraine attackums, but we gave them 20. Right. Um, and with and with that 20, they were able to disable uh, multiple. You know, I think they attacked a, a few helicopter bases. I mean, that that was important because those helicopters were harming them in the opening days of the counteroffensive. Um, you know, and I think that we need to ask ourselves, why were we only in a position to give them 20? Mm. Um, you know, if we're if we're in an era of great power competition and we have responsibilities to NATO, we have responsibilities to our allies and partners in the Asia Pacific. Um, we need to take a good look at our defense industrial base and what it can produce for us and whether or not it can pay the bills um, that we need to pay if we have to, if we are called to. Uh, we can't run another war on credit. And I, I and maybe that's too glib. 
Um, but, you know, the, the weapons that we've been providing to Ukraine have been taken from our stocks and we're backfilling them and, and not even doing that particularly efficiently. Um, you know, we buy ourselves time by dipping into stocks and then we don't make the decisions to expand our capacity. And this is this is not um, this is not workable for the defense that we the defense responsibilities that we have for NATO. It's not workable or viable anymore for Europe either. Um, so there, this war is buying us time as well to make some really important decisions about how we move forward. And we cannot waste this opportunity. Yeah, one can only imagine how complex this would be given events in the Middle East and, and putatively uh, what would happen if we faced a major uh, challenge from Beijing um, in Asia. Um, I want to move on to the unassessable, but I'm going to ask you anyway to assess the unassessable. What, what is Vladimir uh, Putin thinking now, Eric? I would say he feels wind in his sails. He feels like the war is um, finally breaking in his favor. Um, he, you know, the, the fundamentals are good from his viewpoint. The Russian economy um, has proved uh, remarkably resilient to Western sanctions. The Russian defense industrial base is ramping up. Um, after the Prigozhin mutiny last uh, summer, you know, there's no real threat to his power on the horizon, neither from within the regime nor from society. Uh, you know, there's a, a farce of a Russian presidential election that's going to happen in March. And, you know, he's pretty much coasting to another six year term in office. Um, and, you know, Western politics is intervening and the narrative has completely shifted. And we're talking about fatigue and we're talking about how long can the West sustain this? Uh, and, you know, most importantly, um, the counteroffensive last year, which was, you know, a really major effort by the Ukrainians and a major surge by Western partners of equipment and training, uh, the Russians were able to defend against that. And so, you know, he probably feels pretty confident in 2024 um, going into this year that he has the means uh, to slowly grind down the Ukrainians and to uh, exhaust them and bank on um, particularly politics in the West and in, in Washington, uh, especially uh, intervening to give him a decisive advantage by the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, Dara, thought on this one? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that he spends, a you know, I, I'm, I don't know his mind, but balancing the domestic stability picture absorbs a large percentage of his bandwidth. And, you know, this war can't go on forever with the types of casualties that they're taking today, um, you know, in in an effort to encircle the ruins of one Ukrainian village. They're shredding anywhere from 10,000 to upwards of 20,000 casualties over the last couple of months. I mean, this isn't sustainable either. Um, you know, so I, I, I think that he feels confident. That the the West will will buckle. The West, in his view, maybe they assumed um, or assume now that we have an attention span of about two years or less. Um, you know that we're not willing to do what they're willing to do to see this through. Um, I can see this kind of overconfidence coming into their their tone and their language and how they're thinking about this. And they're they're basing that based on um, very mathematical calculations about war math. I mean, that's to, to simplify it, I mean, they're looking at artillery, they're looking at their missile production, they're looking at what's happening in Washington, and concluding that this is going in the right way for them and quickly. Um, 
you know, domestically, Russia has issues, and I think they're trying to paper over those and manage them in the short term. But, you know, I, I don't think that they can keep this intensity up forever from a domestic stability perspective. Their defense industry may be operating at a more efficient level, but but this is having a cost, too. Let's transition now for the balance uh, of our discussion to US, U.S. policy. I mean, based on Dara's assessment and yours, Eric, there are Russian vulnerabilities. So if, in fact, you know, life's about addition and not subtraction, although in this case, it's about addition and subtraction, because you're subtracting from the uh, from Russian resolve and capacity, and you're adding, presumably, to Ukrainian uh, resolve and capacity. Um, what is at, a, at an absolute minimum between now and November 2024? What does the U.S. need to do in order to um, take advantage um, to buck to buck up Ukraine and to re get Putin to reassess to some degree uh, his uh, overconfidence. Eric, to you first. Sure. So you know, I think there's a clear blueprint for how to do this. Um, you know, number one, first and foremost, Congress needs to pass the emergency funding because already the Ukrainians have started rationing uh, ammunition already since the fall. Actually, when the initial emergency request from President Biden of $24 billion over the summer was held up during the ouster of uh, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And now the, you know, 40-something billion in additional military and intelligence aid, which has a, about $20 billion in budgetary support on top of that for a total of $61 billion, um, that's obviously been held up over the um, linkage that Republicans have made to some pretty comprehensive changes to our uh, border and immigration policies. So uh, we need to get through that. Um, but then the second, and I believe even more critical component, is that we need to start constructing a much broader long-term policy framework um, in which uh, you know we provide, we collectively, the United States, European allies, our allies in the Asia-Pacific, provide Ukraine a long-term security arrangement that can bridge the period of time from now until they one day enter, um, you know, Western institutions formally, whether it's the EU, NATO, some combination of the two of them. And what does that look like? Um, so there was this really significant document that was signed last July on the margins of the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, which was a joint declaration of enduring support for Ukraine. And it was signed by the leaders of the G7 nations uh, and the European Union, Subsequently, 24 additional nations have signed on, and basically they all pledged to negotiate separately and together under this multilateral framework, a set of specific bilateral long-term security commitments. And the goal there is to provide a more predictable and sustainable funding model so that Ukrainian military planners can understand what's in the pipeline for them, building towards a future force, for which there's been much planning underway on the Ukrainian side and in the Pentagon, a future Ukrainian force that's capable of defending the country and deterring against a future Russian attack. And I personally wish that this conversation had moved a little bit faster since the Vilnius summit, but it sort of got held up by our politics here and by, you know, focus on the kind of crisis management um, measures, you know, associated with the counteroffensive and all of that. But we're starting to see the fruits of that, um, you know, that initial document um, start to bear out. 
so just last week, uh, the UK prime minister was in Ukraine and he met with President Zelensky and signed this 10-year uh, security cooperation agreement, which is sort of a specific set of bilateral commitments that the UK is making to Ukraine uh, over this 10-year period. Um, that's just one of these kind of branches in this broader tree. Um, think of it maybe as a lattice work of agreements that would come together under this G7 umbrella. And my hope is that we can do a similar thing here and get a very strong U.S. commitment. But the, the big part of this is going to be getting Congress involved, because I think it's not credible from the U.S. side if we don't have substantial interbranch cooperation. Um, the White House talking with Congress, leaders in both parties about how do we, we don't necessarily need to agree on the number for another 10 years because it might be a very large number. It might be very hard to project that number given that conditions will change, but at least let's agree on an honest process for debating this regularly and putting things to a floor so that when there is a majority of members of Congress, which I believe there is now, in favor of supporting Ukraine, the actual ability to vote on that is not held up by the extreme views of a very small minority, which is effectively what's happened right now. Right. And it's going to be amplified. Uh, at least the dysfunction is going to be amplified because we're in, we're now in the middle, witness yesterday, uh, of a, a presidential election season. Um, is this a containment policy, um, Dara? Is, is that what uh, Eugene and uh, Andrew called for in the Wall Street Journal article, and is that what Eric is essentially outlining? Broader long-term containment strategy. Yeah, I, I agree with Eric. I think that um, you know there's several initiatives to to have a future force for Ukraine. I'm I'm I guess a little more short term and trying to see how we can get them through this year on the battlefield. Um, there there are things that can be done and should be done immediately to position them um, this year and moving forward into next year when they're doing that rebuilding um, for the future force. Um, right now, they know they need to dig in. Um, they need to go on the defensive. They need support with that. And the goal here is to um, be able to defend their borders with Belarus, Russia, and the front line and make it so complicated um, that Russia does not continuously try to attack them and move forward like they're doing right now. Um, Russian forces perform and still perform pretty poorly when they're on the offensive. Um, the Ukrainians are defending fairly well in areas where they're dug in, up near Abdivka and, and areas like that. The exchange rate is is insane. I mean, the Russians are losing multiple battalions against, you know, very few comparatively on the Ukrainian side. Um, they also need more air defenses and more air defense interceptors if they're going to um, defend their cities um, as best they can. Um, I also think that it's time to reconsider if there are any policy limitations about longer range strikes on military targets inside Russia proper um, to to leave that um, as a as a sanctuary uh, continues to signal that Ukraine will be a, a missile sponge indefinitely. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that there's there's some dynamics that probably need to change. And this is all in service of Ukraine regenerating its combat power so that they are in a position in 2025 to be able to more effectively contest Russian positions. Um, this is all workable. This is all doable. There are options, but it does need funding, and it needs funding immediately. Right. Uh, and again, 2024 is not the year of another Ukrainian counteroffensive. It's this sort of political, military, defensive posture 
with the addition, perhaps, uh, intriguing your comment about uh, long-range strikes into Russia proper, are you persuaded that the risk uh, aversion that the administration demonstrated, I would have argued, would be quite rational given the numbers of unknowns and uncertainties in the first year of the war, is dissipated to the to the extent that the administration will be willing to countenance these? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly where they're at right now. I mean, these are these are important questions. I mean, this is not something to take lightly, and it should be evaluated, um, not in ignorance um, and not in fear either. Um, you know, I and I think about the behaviors that Russia has exhibited against the Ukrainians. If they're firing missiles that they've sourced from North Korea, 500 kilometers into Ukraine, why is Ukraine not permitted to do the same? And these are these are questions that should be picked up and, and evaluated. Um, you know, Russia has vulnerabilities in its force structure. They can produce hundreds of missiles a month. They cannot produce hundreds of missile launchers a month or hundreds of aircraft a month. Right. No, it's a fascinating point. Um, I want to explore in the time that remains uh, two issues. One, I think we could dispense with pretty quickly, and that is uh, the issue of negotiations. Um, Putin has been, has been sending signals. Um, most folks I talk to argue it, this is largely performative. Um, and I don't want to presume your your views on this, but do you see any sense? Forget the urgency, which is a critical factor in any negotiation. So people aren't in a hurry, then the status quo essentially is maintained. But any prospect for any sort of negotiation, not to end the conflict, that would be of, of value and, and effective uh, for Ukraine in the coming year? You know, I think the issue here is a, a definitional one. Um, sure, Putin is willing to negotiate, but what he defines as a negotiation is very different than what we have in mind, which is a give and take and a search for win-win solutions and compromises that um, you know acknowledge at least the interests of the other party. And what Putin is looking for is to dictate the terms of Ukrainian surrender. He calls it a negotiation because he wants it to be at a table with the flags and produce a document and all of that. But fundamentally, he's not willing to move off his positions that you know he wants control over Ukraine. Um, so, so I don't think we're going to get the kind of grand political, um, you know, war ending negotiation that some people have been kind of hypothesizing about, um, in, in the media. Um, is it possible to imagine sort of, uh, tactical negotiations on specific issues? You know, we haven't really talked about the Black Sea much, but there's been a lot of dynamism there over 2023, despite the kind of static situation on the front lines. And, you know, Ukraine has hit a number of very important uh, targets in the Russian Black Sea fleet, has pushed the Russians basically out of the Western Black Sea and reopened uh, export corridors out of Odessa. Could that be kind of codified into something that's more of a sustainable framework? Um, maybe not getting back exactly to the 2022 UN brokered and, and Turkish brokered uh, Black Sea grain initiative, but maybe something new that talks about de-escalation zones and kind of rules of the road um, to enable commercial shipping in the Black Sea. I think it's totally possible. Um, but again, in that case, it would have been enabled by the Ukrainians being able to, you know, assert a certain level of strength against the Russians and, and reduce the um, Russian ability to maneuver in that particular domain of the war. So could we see that happen on other fronts? Um, could we see it lead potentially to some tactical ceasefires? I'm not really 
you know, I'm not sure. Um, I think it depends again on um, the sense of uh, exhaustion on both sides. And I just don't think we're there yet in terms of either party thinking, you know, this is the end of the road. Right. Now, dare to you, um, any serious negotiation that would create any sense of expectation about a quote unquote sustainable end state would depend on the change in the battlefield dynamic, presumably, that is to say, Ukraine making significant gains that might compel and, and or force Putin, given the vulnerabilities you've identified, to consider or even engage in a negotiation. Is that a, is that a fair logic chain? It is. Ukraine's position at a negotiating table is made much stronger with the understanding that um, you know, they are backed with American and European support in a significant and longstanding way. Um, without that, I don't know what kind of negotiating position they would be, and it would be a terrible one. Um, you know, is it possible that that Russia wants to negotiate? Um, yes, it's possible that they're sending private signals that are somehow very different from the public signals that they're putting out, which don't seem very um, negotiation-minded. It seems more like um, dictating of terms. Um, you know, I would I would say though, um, you know, if there are private conversations going on, um, you know, our support to Ukraine should be about giving Ukraine agency, and that's um, communicating to them that we support them no matter what, um, and no matter which twists and turns this takes or what road they want to take it down. Um, you know, whether that's a ceasefire, whether that's continuing to fight. Um, you know, they're in, they're in the driver's seat on this with us as supporting, and I think that they should be told that. Right, and, and no no need to uh, <clears throat> have this conversation now. We're not of time, and anyway, I'm not sure it's profitable to have it. A sustainable U.S. policy in a long game, which this is, depends on uh, political function and a commitment on the part of the United States to understand both the urgency and the necessity. Uh, Ukraine may or may not be the fulcrum of Western civilization. But the reality is, without American support on a sustainable basis, this is going to have a very unhappy ending. I wanted to I wanted to ask you one more question. We have two minutes or so to do it. NATO, the meetings in Washington in July is that correct? Um, former Secretary General of NATO, the head of uh, Zelensky's presidential office, in a piece of foreign affairs, argued that the only way Putin will ever acknowledge that there are limits in terms of his ambitions on Ukraine is if Ukraine is made a NATO member and not five years from now. Now, so just a thought from each of you, your own view, um, the pros and the cons of NATO membership. And do you think that argument makes sense? You know, I, I do think that Ukraine's eventual place is, you know, in NATO, in the European security system. Um, I think there's no there's no way of going back, um, you know, to kind of the 90s and considering these gray zones as areas of stability, um, like folks thought that there could be kind of a, a buffer zone that would provide uh, security to both the Russians and NATO. Obviously, Russia has completely invalidated that logic. But I will say that there are very substantial um, real hurdles to getting there. And the main one is that Ukraine is uh, in the midst of a full-fledged war with a nuclear superpower that is occupying almost 20% of its territory. And so there's no, there's no precedent for 
Um, but there's also a lot of danger in um, the idea of bringing a country into a military alliance, the basis of which is collective and mutual self-defense, um, you know, when there's an active war going on. So I don't think the conversation on NATO membership is going to substantially progress at the Washington summit. But I don't believe that that is uh, an excuse to just put off the conversation on European security more broadly. And that's why I get back to this earlier point I made about this interim security arrangement, which could be very substantial, you know, multilateral and based on really, really strong commitments that could be a bridging mechanism until we get there one day, whether that requires political change in Russia or some other major, you know, unforeseen circumstance. Yeah, sound reasoning. And dare to you, final word. Uh, yeah, no, Eric laid out some really sound reasoning there. Um, so, you know, yes, NATO membership could stop the war. Yes, Ukraine is now the most combat experienced military in Europe against fighting the Russians. Um, and yes, with Western assistance, they have um, were on the way to you know breaking the spine of the professional Russian army. But where I get stuck is that I can't see a path um, in July for you for NATO to entertain a membership extension to Ukraine when 18 percent of its territory is occupied. So that leads me to, you know, what can be done for Ukraine? What type of interim security guarantees can be done for Ukraine until that time? Right. But the logic is if Ukraine, if Ukraine in is in NATO during the middle of a hot war, then NATO is at war. And for all practical purposes, so is the United States. Is that is that the basic logic chain? That's that's uh, yes. Right. And and in 2024, in the run up to an election, one of the most consequential, I suspect, in modern American history. Uh, <clears throat> I, I think I know where the Biden administration is going to be on that particular issue. But look, it's been 45 minutes, a real treat. You've helped crystallize my own thinking uh, with your clarity and, and your depth of experience and expertise. I really appreciate it. Ukraine may be out of the headlines for now, but I suspect, as the two of you know, uh, it will be back. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Take care and uh, all the best for the new year. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.